0: All right, last week we left off in verse 12, 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 12. And we looked at three verbs that described King Ahaz's sin. The word saw, approached, and offered. And if you need to catch up on some of that, you can watch the Facebook recorded version So that way, this morning, we can go a little deeper into our study. And I want to go back to the passage in Genesis chapter 3 that I read you last week. I read you the first half of the verse for a reason. Now we're going to look at the rest of the verse. I'm going to use the whole verse. Because we're studying how King Ahaz's sin unfolded. He saw, he approached, and he offered in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, "...and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat." So in that verse, we read that Eve saw that the tree was good for food. In other words, she beheld it. She didn't just glance at it and say, well, there's a tree, there's another tree, there's a squirrel, right? Yeah. She beheld that tree. She had interest in it. As we learned, the word means to regard or consider. She regarded that tree and considered it. And if you... In fact, she enjoyed the sight of it. And if you look at the words after the word saw in that verse, it actually gives you insight into what the word saw meant in that verse when she saw the tree. You see the words good for food. She saw that it was good for food. Pleasant to the eyes, desired to make one wise. Now those are three phrases that, indicate to us that Eve had formed an opinion about that tree. She didn't just look at it, she beheld it, and she formed several opinions, in fact. One, that it was good for food, and two, it looked good, and three, it sounded good. It would make me wise if I eat the food. So not only would it taste good, but the after effects would be to make me wise, So one thing that Eve could not say is, well, I was just looking at it. She did way more than that. Now here's an example for us. If you were in a restaurant and you saw a woman's purse sitting in the chair of a restaurant table and there was nobody around, the woman had already left the restaurant, your mind would begin forming an opinion about that purse. You might say, huh, someone left her purse there, and just walk away, not really caring one way or another about it, figuring it's none of your business. Or you might say, oh no, someone left her purse there. Because you know what is normally in a woman's purse and those things are important to her that's why she carries them around she's not carrying them around to get overdeveloped traps on one side from having a heavy purse she puts things in there that she needs that she wants to have in there or very wickedly that third opinion a person might form is aha there's an abandoned purse I'm going to secretly take it away and steal the money and the credit cards and whatever other goodies there might be in there. And Ann's Ann's would be a good one to steal because it's got peppermints. Lots of peppermints in there. But in any of those three cases, the person who saw the purse developed an opinion. One opinion was apathetic. Huh, somebody left their purse there, I don't care one way or the other. I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to go return it. I'm just going to walk away. The second opinion was a compassionate opinion, an honest opinion. Oh, no, someone left her purse there, which would lead to righteous action. I've got to find out who that is and return it to her. Or the wicked person, the sinful person, would form an opinion that would lead to unrighteous action. You see, Ahaz saw the altar Uriah had made. His opinion about that altar was not apathetic. He did care. His opinion was not righteous, because that altar was forbidden by the Lord. His opinion was sinful. He saw the altar, and then he approached it to make an offering. And that Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6 passage I read you, even though we see Eve go from looking to eating, what was the thing she had to do in order to take of that fruit? She had to approach the tree. Now, we don't see the word approached in there, but it's implied. If she saw it, she had to get close enough to pick the fruit off of the tree. So she had to approach it. Now, if you think that you're strong enough to just look at something sinful and not behold it, not form an opinion about it, you're deceiving yourself. You're not that sterilized. You can't do that. You're, you have me too. We have a flesh, and that flesh wants to sin, and the devil just whispers, not audibly, but to your spirit, hey, you're okay. It's not a bad sin. It's, as the Catholics call it, it's, that's not a venial sin. That's not a mortal sin. It's a venial sin. Making all these separations and distinctions. We're not strong enough to do that. That's why there's such a focus on what we see, on the eyes in the Bible. <clears throat> Several years ago, I equipped my own weight room in my house. It's in an upstairs bedroom that was formerly occupied by one of my daughters who's now married. So what else is there to do with such a room but turn it into a weight room, an exercise room? And when I did that, I stopped going to 24-Hour Fitness, which was where I trained Did weight training for a lot of years. And during the years I was at 24-Hour Fitness, I had some really good workouts. I got a lot stronger. However, there were two things in particular that I do not miss about going to 24-Hour Fitness. One is the ungodly music that was being pumped through the speakers. And the other was the women who wore next to nothing whenever they came into the gym, whatever their purpose was. Those women were worldly, they were vain, and they were there to strut their stuff in front of men who were worldly and vain and who were there to strut their stuff in front of women. Just that pack seems to go together. And I don't miss having to avert my eyes walk away from places where they gathered and then try to erase from my mind the images that had been before them. I'm being real with you here because I think this will help somebody who's listening, who's watching. I know how Satan uses what we see to tempt us to sin. I don't miss the gym at all. I know Satan tempted Eve with what she saw. He tempted Ahaz with what he saw. When he saw that altar, he got so excited he went and made an offering on it instead of saying, wait a minute, I've messed up. That's not God's altar. I don't want any part of that. Destroy it. He took the next step. At my house, in my weight room, I can't... I don't have to worry about all of that stuff that took place in a weight room that didn't belong to me. I can control the music. I can control who comes in and out of there. And the only woman in there that I want to look at is the one that I'm married to. That makes it a lot easier, doesn't it? And I'm going to tell you, I'll never go back to a gym now. I love it. I wish I'd have done that a long time ago, like Brother Fulton did, built in his house, his own training area. Eve saw the tree, so she approached it. Ahaz saw the altar of Damascus, and he approached it. Do you know who is more foolish than a person who says, I can look all day long as long as I don't touch? It's a person who says, not only can I look all day long, but I can even approach sin without touching it. I can go right up to the window and still not partake in the sin. The person who says that has overestimated himself and he's underestimated the devil. Don't ever underestimate the devil. Sometimes when people get to calling the devil names or saying all manner of things about him, even though they're true, their pride begins to well up in them and say, I'm stronger than he is. No, you're not. The Spirit of God is stronger than he is, and the Spirit of God working in you gives you the victory over the devil every time. But you're not stronger than the devil, nor am I. Do you know of anyone in the Bible who overestimated himself? I do. There were several. One of them was named Simon Peter. And I want you to listen This passage, it's in Matthew chapter 26. If you want to take notes and write it down, Matthew 26, verses 31 through 35, where it says, Then Jesus saith unto them, Now he's talking to his disciples, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered, now he's talking to Jesus. Jesus just told him, here's what's going to happen. That's called a prophecy, isn't it? Here's what's going to happen, Peter, and all the rest of you. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, these spiritually weak disciples around me, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow thou shalt deny me thrice, three times. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. They said the same thing Peter did. They shouted, Amen. All right, these disciples, not just Peter, but all of them, told Jesus that even though others may be offended, they would not. So not only did the disciples, namely Simon Peter, because we see his words, Not only did he overestimate himself, but he underestimated the power of Satan over his fallen flesh. Because what happened that night before the cock crew three times? Peter denied him. Or the cock crew, Peter denied him three times. I mean, boom, boom, boom. We got to read about it. So he wasn't stronger than Satan. So his words did not come true, Peter's did not, and Jesus' words did come true. Now, in Matthew 16, 21 through 23, there was another place where Peter contradicted what Jesus said. Jesus made a statement. Peter said, no, that's not true. Can you imagine that? But did you know that's what people do when they look at God's word and go against it? They're basically they may as well be standing in front of Jesus saying, that's not right. It says, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Now, this is back in Matthew, 10 chapters before what I read you a minute ago. So what did Jesus just say? In essence, the gospel's got to be fulfilled. I have to die. I've got to suffer and die and be buried and raised again. I have to do that, and I'm going to do that. The scripture is going to be fulfilled. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Now Peter's prophesying to Jesus, contradicting what Jesus just told him. But he, that's Jesus, turned and said unto Peter, now listen to what he said. He didn't say, Peter, get out of my sight. He said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Jesus told Peter, You're going to deny me. Peter said, No, I won't. Jesus told Peter that Jesus would suffer and die and be raised again. Peter said, no, you won't. He said, be it far from thee. So whether it be Peter denying the Lord's prophecies, Ahaz approaching a forbidden altar, or a person today denying God's word, all of those actions are authored by Satan. You need to know that. In your flesh you have no power over Satan. In his flesh, Peter had no power over Satan. But in the Spirit of Christ, you already have victory over Satan. So when you try to take on the devil, you're already 0-1. But if you yield yourself to God's Spirit, say, Lord, you know this enemy... This enemy's been too powerful for every man that's ever been born except for your son, so I'm coming through him. I'm claiming what his word says about it. I'm yielding to what your spirit is doing in me. And even though he may take me to the grave, because the wages of sin is death, if I'm in you, he doesn't get the victory. Peter was foolish, and Ahaz was foolish, and Eve was foolish. And so are you, and so am I, if we go against God's word. Eve approached the tree of knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember, that was the one God told Adam and her, don't eat of it. She approached that tree, and she took its fruit. Ahaz approached the altar of Damascus and he offered thereon. That means he put his offering up on top of it. Now, do you know who's more foolish than a person who says, I can look at sin, I can approach sin, and I can even hold sin in the palm of my hand, but I will not eat of it. It's a person who offers thereon. Ahaz put his offering up there. Now he hadn't set it on fire, hadn't burned it or anything. The offering wasn't complete, but it was on the altar. That person who says, I can can look at it, I can approach it, I can even set it up there on the altar, but I won't offer it, I won't sin. It won't hurt anything to just put it up there. I've known many alcoholics in my life and God has brought a few of them out of that miry pit and to himself through salvation. Others have lost the fight. Some of them were family members. Some of them were friends. And I'm going to tell you it's sad to watch. It's so sad. But do you know what the alcoholics who have been saved, what they'll tell you? They know better than to look at a bottle of liquor. They do. Because their fleshly appetite, and particularly the addictive behavior they had demonstrated before, will cause them to approach that bottle. They look at it. They want to approach it. That's what they did all those years when it had the power over them. And they know better than to approach that liquor bottle, that can of beer, by walking down the aisle where it's sold. Because then they're going to be tempted to buy it. They know better than to walk into the bar where there it is right there on the Shelf or on the bar because now they've approached it and they're going to want to buy it. They know better than to hold that cold can of beer in their hands. Now that's like putting the offering up there on the altar. Hadn't opened it yet. Hadn't set the offering on fire. But there it is, right there in the hand. You know why they know better than to hold that can of beer or that bottle of liquor in their hands? Because they know they'll be tempted to open it and to drink it. And they know better than to drink one because one will turn into two, won't it? That'll turn into a whole case or a whole bottle. And I'm telling you, if you talk to somebody who, and this isn't just for an alcoholic, this is somebody who's a drug addict too. You talk to them and you ask them, is that about how that goes? They'll say, you bet it is. That's exactly how it goes. So, working backwards, rather than taking the alcoholic and saying, listen, you got a problem. When you go into the bar, what I want you to start doing is ordering Diet Coke. Now, I'm going to testify for Diet Coke just a minute. Diet Coke will not get you drunk. It will not cause you marriage problems unless you buy more of that than you do whatever Mrs. wants. But you drink Diet Coke in that bar, Mr. Alcoholic, and you're going to be fine. Can't do it. And so you say, you can't go in a bar. You can't be going in the liquor store. When you go into Walmart, don't go down that aisle where they sell that. There is nothing there that you need. In fact, if you want to shop healthy, shop the outside of a store. Now you just try that one time and tell me if you don't buy more healthy. Now, unless you're a grandparent, you got to get in the middle of the store where the boxes of cookies and stuff are. But if you're eating for yourself around the outside of the store, you got no business going up and down that liquor aisle. There's just not anything there that you need. So instead of telling that alcoholic, all right, now don't go in the bar and don't even go into the parking lot of the bar. You want to back that alcoholic all the way up to, listen, when your eyes see a can of beer or a bottle of whiskey, turn away, get out of there, right then. Put yourself in the position of prayer. Lord, you know what I saw and you know what my flesh is capable of. It's capable of going all the way down that road until I'm flat on my face in some gutter or in some bathroom somewhere so drunk I can't get up. And Lord, I know that path. And right now, I want you to help me. That's where you cry for help. Don't cry for help when you're laying in the gutter. You see how important it is to regulate what is in front of those eyes? That's why if your office or your business has a so-called Christmas party every year, or whatever it may be. Hey, if there's gonna be any liquor there, just don't go. There's not any reason to go. And especially if you had trouble with alcohol or drugs in your past. But what's what's gonna be there? If there's alcohol there, what are there gonna be? People who are intoxicated. And I don't like being around them. In fact, I get paid good money to put them in jail when they drive or when they act a fool in public. I sure don't want to be around them off-duty, even if they're my family whom I love. I don't want to be around it. Now, maybe you'll understand why Jesus said what he said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. We're trying to learn an awful lot about Ahaz. We're really getting deep, peeling back the layers of the onion here. In Matthew 5, 28, Jesus said, But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his own heart. You notice where he, Jesus went? He didn't say whosoever is alone with a woman in a car, that's not his wife, or whosoever is, uh, is holding a woman or holding her hand. No, he said whosoever looketh on her to lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his own heart. Jesus is appealing to you through your eyes. He's saying, listen, it matters what you look upon. You go back and look at Ahaz, what was the first thing he did? He looked upon it. And all of the sin, all of the unfolding of his sin came after that, just as sure as the sun comes up and sets down. I know it doesn't come up and set down. The Jeremenians would say, Brother Andy, actually the earth revolves and the sun stays still. I know. And they're exactly right. But, am I right, Sarah? Were you thinking about it? And that's exactly right. But we have that expression, the sun comes up, the sun goes down. And that's how certain it is. Now, this is Jesus telling us. You look upon a woman, and it goes same for a woman looking upon a man. And I ain't getting into all that other stuff. But the man looking on the woman and the woman looking on the man, that's all I want to deal with, in fact. The rest of it is just perversion altogether. He didn't say, whosoever... Taketh a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his own heart. He didn't say whosoever approacheth a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already with her in his own heart. He said whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his own heart. Have you heard the word look and the word saw enough to know that that's where you need to have your guard up? Jesus knew that the desire Eve had for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would result in her partaking of it unto her destruction. He already knows. The Bible says that Jesus didn't need anyone to testify of man because he knew what was in man. He already knows what drives us. He knows how corrupt our flesh is. And he knew that looking upon a woman to lust after her would result in a man committing adultery with her already in his heart. In other words, in his mind, he's already looked at her, approached her, talked to her, held her in his arms, and committed adultery. All that has already happened in his mind before he ever takes that step. I think it was Adrian Rogers who once said, emotional adultery always precedes physical adultery. And I think that Jesus bears that out right here. Maybe that's where he got that, that phrase from. When a, a glance becomes a look with an unrighteous opinion attached to it, that's when you need to confess it to the Lord right then. Turn away, spiritually and physically, from what your eyes have beheld whether it's the strange woman or any other thing that tempts you to sin. I'm going to give you an example. In my career, I've had a, worn a few different hats, and for the better part of 20 years, one of the things I did is uh, monitor the sex offenders who were on probation or parole and also those who had not yet gone to court. I did investigations on that group. And although people say, well, I think they ought to all go to prison for life, well, the reality is that's not happening. They're on probation and parole and and so forth. So that's where we are with them. And when a child molester gets put on probation, he's given a list of things that he has to do and a list of things that he may not do. Those are called conditions of probation. And one of the things he must not do, or she, is go within a thousand feet of places where children gather, like a school, a playground, little league stadium, theme parks, and all sorts of other places where children gather. Now that rule keeps that child molester from beholding those children with his eyes. Because that's where it starts right there. He sees them and he goes, I covet. And we as a society and the court system don't trust that child molester to drive through a school zone at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a Monday and restrain himself. Now, he may be able to. He may say, I drove through the school zone, I looked, I saw kids, and I kept going. Well, we don't want him in that position. We don't want him having to make the decision about whether to stop or not. We don't trust him to coach a peewee baseball team. We don't trust him to park in the parking lot and just look, but don't get out of the car. And we certainly don't trust him to be in a vehicle with a child as long as he doesn't do anything illegal. We don't want him close enough to even look at the children. In fact, if that child molester on probation or parole encounters a child while grocery shopping or filling up his gas tank or her gas tank, we expect that offender to leave the area as soon as possible and not remain in the presence of the child. How easy would it be for them to say, well, I was just minding my own business and this kid walked up. Well, you know what you should have done? Get in your car and get out of there. Turn around and walk away. Because your rules say you cannot remain within the presence of a child. So other than locking the offender up for life this seems to be the best way to keep the offender from engaging in the behavior that got him into trouble in the first place, if he's going to be on probation or parole. And if such an offender violates his probation or parole conditions by remaining in the presence of a minor, then he gets into trouble. And he may have his probation or parole revoked, resulting in a trip to prison. And in such a case... And I've heard them say this. He may say, I didn't do anything illegal. I was just looking. I just happened to be passing through that school zone. I was just taking a walk in that children's park, minding my own business. He can't say any of that because the law said, or the probation conditions said, do not go within a 1,000 feet. Now, all of that makes perfect sense if you understand... What Jesus has taught us through his word about the unfolding of sin. You look, and that's where you have the problem, if that look forms an unrighteous opinion. That glance becomes an unrighteous opinion. And we've learned many things about, or many things from Ahaz, when it comes to the various stages of sin. We've seen how it unfolds. And it's the same process for every person. For Eve, for Simon Peter for you and me, for Ahaz and many others. In fact, for everyone. That's how it happens. So let's learn a very simple truth from Job. In chapter 31 and verse 1, Job, we know, was a righteous man. And he said in Job 31.1, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why, then, should I think upon a maid? Now, Job was a married man. The word think in that verse also means to consider or to regard or to understand. So this isn't just a thought that flashes through your mind and you go, ooh, get that out of there. You ever had that? I have. I'm going to tell you. We'll be mowing the lawn and listening to some good quartet a cappella singing and then something will flash through my mind and I'll think, oh, get that out of there. I don't want, that's, that's the flesh. That's the devil trying to interrupt my worship. And boy, he does it in here too, doesn't he? It gets us distracted and thinking about other stuff. But Job knew that a covenant with his eyes would keep him from considering a maid. So if he didn't look upon one and go, boy, she really looks good today, then he wouldn't start entertaining those thoughts. He'd see her and go, nope, I love my wife. He was married, and even though, if you're familiar with Job, after all the terrible things that happened to him, even though his wife encouraged him to sin by saying, dost thou still retain thine integrity, Curse God and die. She told him that. He knew not to do that. The Bible says, In all this, Job sinned not, neither charged God foolishly. He knew it would be wrong to consider a mate. And so now, this isn't a picture of a happy marriage where the man and the woman are in perfect fellowship with one another and they love one another and they're always. Together, and and, no, this is a picture of a man and woman who've lost all of their children, a man and a woman who've lost all but four of their servants, and all of their livestock, either through natural disaster or theft by the Sabaeans. They're in a rough place. This is not a joyous occasion for them. And Job, in the midst of all that, He may as well have said, even though my wife has been a stinker, I can't stand her right now. She's telling me to curse God and and all of that instead of encouraging me spiritually. He said, I'm not going to think upon a maid. While we're on this, I want to tell you how the devil uses a situation like this, like the one Job has, to get a spouse to commit adultery. Let's take a woman who tries to live a godly life, but her husband makes fun of her, ridicules her walk with God, maybe even tells her, why don't you take a break from all that? Every Sunday you're up there and we could be going off and doing this and that. So that woman works with or maybe even goes to church with a godly man. One who walks with the Lord and treats her as a Christian ought to treat a married woman as a Christian ought to treat another man's wife. He's respectful to her. He's never inappropriate. He doesn't put himself in questionable situations or conversations with her. So the woman with the sorry husband begins thinking upon this man, this Christian man. She begins wondering, what would it be like to have a man like that for my husband rather than that scoundrel I've got at home? Nobody had more of a scoundrel for a spouse than Job did, and yet he refused to think upon a maid. He would not consider leaving the wife of his youth, the mother of his children, for another woman no matter how bad things were. Listen, we are bombarded every day with images and sounds that appeal to our sin nature. And although we can remove some of those things from our lives by just staying away, we can't spiritually sterilize the world around us, can we? Only when Jesus comes will that be done. So if you're thinking, boy, I'll be glad when old so-and-so gets elected to this or that, things are going to get better. Well, they may get better, and I hope they do, but they're not going to get perfect. It's not going to remove sin from the world. That's not who my hope is in, the next president or governor or representative or mayor of fate, Texas. I don't have my hope in any of those people. I want them to do right. I pray they'll do right. I hope I elect the one who is less evil than the other. So, until Jesus comes and makes all things new, we have to yield to God's Spirit to help us in those times of temptation, to remind us that he has made a way of escape. You're not bearing this temptation by yourself. And wouldn't it have been wonderful if King Ahaz had known that escape as that spectacular altar from Damascus, and the religion to which it belonged were so tempting to him. But Ahaz didn't want to put up with that old bloody brazen altar that God commanded to be built and used in the daily sacrifices. He could have a trophy altar. Just like some men may say as an excuse for stepping out on their wives my wife's too old and she's lost her girlish figure. She's snappy and she's cranky and her cooking's terrible. And I think upon a maid, I'm going to think upon a trophy wife and find me some young, attractive woman and trade in the old lady for her. Everyone will be impressed when they see her. That's what goes through a person like that through their mind. Now, men, if you're a godly man and you're married, that ought to make you cringe right there. And every time I hear some man complain about his wife and what she's a-doing and what she's not a-doing and what she's a-saying or so forth, I wonder what it was that brought them together in the first place. What was that magnetism that brought them together and made each one of them say, ha, that's the one for me right there? It makes me wonder if a man like that ever loved his wife in the first place or if it was all about carnal things. Ahaz never loved God's altar in the first place. That's why it was so easy for him to order up a new, shiny, trophy altar. Ahaz never loved God's priesthood in the first place. And I don't think Uriah did either. That's why it was so easy for Ahaz to ask Uriah to violate God's commandments by making a foreign altar We're getting down deep in God's word today, aren't we? In the mind. You may say, Brother Andy, you have no idea what I have to deal with. And you're right. But God does. God knows exactly what you have to deal with. In fact, he's given you a verse that will encourage you in this world that's filled with sin's temptation. And I partially referred to it a moment ago, but it's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Where Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer or allow you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it so when you are at that point and you say god this one's really heavy then you need to know he already knows it and he's already made a way of escape for you you're not bearing this by yourself you have a way of escape but it's the one God provided you. So if you're looking for someone else, if you're saying, man, I need to go see a, a counselor. Well, let me tell you, if you're going to go see a counselor, you better go see one who knows God's Word, who's a Christian. I wouldn't recommend you to anyone else. They may be brilliant. They may be compassionate and have all sorts of things to say to you, but ultimately, you need someone who's going to steer you to God's Word. Because God said during all those times, I've got something for you. I've got a way of escape. Isn't that what you want? You don't want to feel like this anymore. You say, boy, I keep getting bombarded with these sinful images. I think I better go see a therapist. No, you need to remember that God has made a way of escape. Just for you. It's not for him. It's for you. Ahaz did not have to yield to the temptation to have a fancy altar. Uriah did not have to yield to the temptation to to please the king at the cost of disobeying the Lord. But now Ahaz has offered thereon. And next week we're going to look further into these offerings of blasphemy that were made by King Ahaz. That's a good place for us to stop. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the faithfulness of your word And Lord, we know that you have bound yourself unto your word so that it never lies and you never lie. And I pray you would help us, especially when we're under the attack of the flesh from the fiery darts of Satan, those arrows of the wicked one, to turn to your word, to read what it says, to believe those promises, and then to act upon them, knowing that you Have and you will give us the victory in every case, no matter what happens to us in this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.